0: So this evening I'd like to talk around the theme of fearless kindness. The Buddha firmly placed kindness as being the very foundation of spiritual awakening. He placed kindness as being the foundation for Understanding, interconnectedness as the foundation of a noble life, place kindness as being the foundation of harmonious communities and relationships. He also spoke about kindness as being the very reason for our practice, the motivation that lies beneath all of our practice, that we sit, that we walk, that we breathe, that we Pay attention out of kindness in the service of kindness as a genuine commitment to the healing of suffering, of alienation, of struggle and conflict. Shantideva was a great poet of compassion and kindness, I would say. I'm to read you something from This book, or part of a book on the Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, Adopting the Spirit of Awakening, he says, May I be a protector for those who are without protectors, a guide for travelers, and a boat, a bridge, and a ship for those who wish to cross over. May I be a lamp for those who seek light, a bed for those who seek rest. And may I be a servant for all beings who desire a servant. To all sentient beings, may I be a wish-fulfilling gem, a vase of good fortune, a great medication, a wish-fulfilling tree. Just as earth and other elements are useful in various ways to innumerable sentient beings dwelling through infinite space, So may I be, in various ways, a source of life for the sentient beings present throughout space until they are all liberated. The Dalai Lama once asked about his faith. He said, my religion is kindness. And when we think about kindness or reflect upon kindness, I'm sure we can all remember moments in our life when our own hearts have softened and we find ourselves reaching out to touch, to console, to support another person in distress with all the kindness that we are able to muster in those moments. I'm sure if we reflect on it, we can all remember Many moments in our lives of kindness that we have received from others, a supportive friend in times of distress, generosity in times of anxiety, love in times of desolation. We have all known and been shown kindness in our lives, perhaps not as much as we would wish for, but I think it is no stranger to us. And I, I feel that one of the, part of the great genius of the Buddha is that he's very, very inclined to build upon that which we already know, to build upon that which we have already glimpsed, rather than introducing some concept or quality that we have no idea what is being talked about. When we speak about kindness or cultivating kindness, I think we all know or have tasted kindness at some point. Now, I feel that we are often very drawn to the receptive, the gentle face of kindness, as you often see manifested in many of the statues of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion where the face is very often gentle, very very receiving, very soft. But there is another face of kindness, and I think it is the face of fearlessness. And if you look through the Chinese tradition, it, there are many times when Kuan Yin has been portrayed as an armed warrior, you know, armed with shield and crossbows and arrows. The Face of Fearlessness. It is about the courage of kindness, the courage that allows us to be upright and present in the face of suffering and pain. It's about the courage that we're asked to find to that allows us to meet the inevitable moments of, of conflict and loss and desolation that are part of our lives, that in many ways are really part of being human. It is the fearless kindness that rescues us from despair, that keeps us showing up for the present with a heart of calmness, a mind that can focus even in the face of the seeming impossible. I want to orient this talk tonight around a poem that some of you will be very, very familiar with by Naomi Shihab Nye called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all of, this, all of this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers, eating maize and chicken, will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. I think this poem speaks so eloquently to the fearless kindness we are asked to find in our own hearts. It's that fearlessness that can allow us to meet the desolation of loss with kindness, the fearless that can open to the threads of all sorrows, the fearlessness that allows us to see ourselves in the eyes of a stranger and to know that they live, as we do, with hopes and plans, and never knowing when our world will crumble. The fearlessness that allows our hearts to open, instead of resorting to defense and protectiveness. Beneath the sophistication of Buddhist teaching lies the simplicity of kindness. But of course it is not just the Buddhist tradition that so holds this at its heart. It's not as if Buddhism has a copyright on kindness. If you look even at the the newer sciences, the neuroscientific research, that is discovering that kindness is as essential to the well-being of our hearts, as nutrition is to our bodies. The Buddha very much taught kindness as courage, as the healer of fear. In the early days of his teaching, the Buddha recognized fear as being one of the primary causes of sorrow and struggle, and fear has many manifestations. Aversion is said to be the same as fear. Resistance, judgment, despair, ill will. If we look into them closely, we see how much fear is really at their heart. And it is a fear that that leeches joy from our lives and really isolates us into an anxious heart and an anxious life disconnected from other hearts and lives it is fear that can make us aggressive in the early days of the Buddhist teaching when monks and nuns would go off into jungles and forests to practice you know they didn't have meditation centers (laughs) they didn't have monasteries they had jungles with tigers and uh, all kinds of things you know No shelters. And there was a time when the nuns and the monks came running out of the jungle to the Buddha saying they couldn't possibly practice in this jungle because of the demons that were afflicting them. And in this story, the demons are not literal or external demons, but I suspect were very much the demons of anxiety and fear and self-protection and doubt that lived in the hearts of the nuns and monks. And the Buddha knew this. And when the nuns and the monks came running out of the jungle in despair, he didn't offer, you know, simple consolations and reassurance. The Buddha didn't say, you know, like, take a break, you know. <laughs> you know, find a nicer place to practice, you know. Never mind this stuff, you know, we'll, we'll fix it. Instead, the Buddha spoke about kindness and he spoke about the fearless kindness that could conquer all demons. Now, when we hear these stories, you know, we very much need to hear them as teaching stories and we very much need to translate them into our own story and our own experience. What are the demons we flee from? There may be a very long list. It may be the discomfort of our bodies. It may be the discomfort of our minds. It may be difficult people, difficult situations. It may be memories from our past. We may flee from the demons of not getting what we want or the demon of feeling not in control. We may flee from illness that we have made into a demon or loss. And what happens when we fear? I think this is, when we flee, I think this is so important for us to understand. What happens when fear governs our heart? It's actually very simple what ha- happens. We become more inclined to be fearful. We become more inclined to be fearful. And it is if our world gets a little bit smaller each time we flee. Our sense of possibility, our sense of confidence shrinks a little bit each time we flee. The fearlessness of kindness is not suggesting a kind of, you know, macho pose of overcoming, you know, suppressing, surmounting, nothing like that. The fearlessness of kindness also doesn't mean the absence of fear, but I think the fearlessness of kindness, the fearless kindness, is (laughs) deeply knowing there is something else that is far more important than fear. What is more important than fear? sense of vision, sense of possibility, compassion, generosity, connectedness, inner freedom. And I think when we know this deeply, we also, I think, probably can all acknowledge that fearlessness is not developed in the most idyllic, pleasant, and undisturbed moments of our lives. Isn't it easy then to be fearless? nothing is bothering us. (laughs) But fearlessness is developed and nurtured, actually, in the midst of fear, the places where kindness so easily disappears. I think kindness and fearlessness begins with opening to and acknowledging the fears that do rise in our hearts. Yet finding the willingness, because we know there is something more important, The willingness to approach our fears with tenderness and kindness instead of avoidance, because avoidance is just feeding. But learning what it means to be curious about fear, the landscape of fear, to understand the ways we can be governed by fear, and to understand that being governed by fear in every moment is to undermine confidence and freedom. I think fearlessness is a lot about learning just to be still, to be steadfast in the face of fear, and loosen, and in doing that, loosening the hold that fear has on our hearts. It's like the monks and the nuns in the forest who were able in the end to look their demons in the eye with fearless kindness, only then did the demons begin to soften and dissolve. Now in this teaching story, it's said that the demons in the face of kindness vowed to serve the sangha, vowed to serve the community for the rest of their days. Again, this is a teaching metaphor. (laughs) What the story doesn't say is that the demon disappeared. It not say that the demons just disappeared. But perhaps those demons became the ground for the nuns and the monks to begin to understand the origins of fear and the ways to find an unshakable heart and freedom in the midst of fear. I wonder how many of you remember as children some of the big fears you had. I know mine was the monster under the bed. Apparently this is quite common as children, you know. The monster under the bed. And I was sure it was there. You know, every night. And, you know, I remember my, my mother, you know, telling me and consoling me and reassuring me and when that didn't work, scolding me. And that never made the monster disappear. Hmm? The only, But when I could find, when all other kind of strategies had run out, when I could find the willingness, the courage to look under the bed, that was only the moment that I could understand that really the monster was created and lived in my own mind and its grip could begin to soften. In Naomi Shihabnai's poem, She says, before we know kindness as the deepest thing inside, we must know sorrow as the other deepest thing until we see the size of the cloth. Now the whole encouragement in this teaching is to turn towards what we are prone to avoid, to explore the landscape of fear, to know its ground as a place where we transform our heart. Now again, I'm going to go into a list here because the Buddha talked about the five primary stred, uh, strands or threads of fear that run through our lives as human beings, the threads of fear that lead us to live in an anxious and de- defensive way. Now there is some debate about which of these first two fears tops the bill. But maybe they're kind of interchangeable. The first one is the fear of death. The second is the fear of public speaking. (laughs) The third is the fear of the loss of reputation. The fourth is the fear of not having enough. And the fifth is the fear of unusual mind states or emotions. Pretty much covers the territory, doesn't it? (laughs) There might be a few more we could add, but, you know, they're probably woven into these. So I want to look at these. Let's return first to one of the verses in her poems. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must know how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. There is the truth, the inevitable reality of death. This is not just something that happens to other people. It is part of our universal story we know and will experience the deaths of those that we love and care for. We see the many small endings, the small deaths that run through all of our days, all of our lives. In reality, if we look at anything at all that we have, that we treasure, that we depend upon, that we crave for, anything at all that we call our own, it is if it is appearing with the message on it. This too will end. This too will pass. We could be very fearful of that message, or we could understand it as a message that allows us really to live our lives fully. Mary Oliver wrote, To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your own life depends on it, and when the time comes to let it go, to let it go. It's a very difficult lesson to learn. Because we see how much we endeavor, how much heroic, how heroically we try to arrange our world and our mind, our life, to avoid this message, our great plans, our great projects, the things we surround ourselves with. The sense of having a tomorrow is deeply important to us. And being safe at times is felt, I think it felt at times, to be more important than being free. But really, do any of our plans, any of our defenses, any of our holding actually make us feel more safe? Only when we don't look at this illusory sense of safety more closely. My sense is that in our willingness to embrace the vulnerable and the fragile nature of our lives profoundly and deeply, the willingness to allow our future to dissolve, that this does not actually in reality make us feel more anxious or more unsafe. But I think that willingness is perhaps what allows us to begin to live the life that we really long to live. A life and a heart that is aligned and in harmony with the way things actually are. A life that is aligned with what is actually true. And I think when we can take that step to aligning our hearts with the way things actually are, all the beginnings, all the endings, all the arisings, all the passings. That is, in letting go of that defensiveness and protectiveness, it's what allows us to begin to emerge from the cocoon of selfing. The cocoon of selfing that is always dividing the world into me and you, me and the world, me and them. It's it's perhaps when we begin to emerge from that cocoon of selfing that is so built upon defensiveness and protectedness that we really begin to taste a little bit of our essential interconnectedness. It is a sense, that sense of interconnectedness is something that fear destroys. But that sense of interconnectedness is, in truth, the mother of all kindness. And perhaps we do this as a practice. You know, perhaps we begin to notice and to embrace all the small endings in our day the passing of the sound of the bell, the ending of a breath, the changing of a sensation, the endings of all our experiences in the day, of lunch, of, of tea, the ending of a thought. Perhaps we begin to see the beginnings and the endings of the lovely and the unlovely. And maybe as we do that we can begin to find a little bit more ease, to to start to put down all those arguments that say this shouldn't be happening. Yeah? This shouldn't happen to me. This shouldn't be happening. Perhaps in putting down that fear and anxiety, we we start to learn what it means to be upright and poised and rooted in understanding. We begin to taste freedom and the freedom of not being bound by conditions and the freedom of not being any longer afraid of loss. It doesn't mean that loss isn't sad. Loss is deeply sad. Loss is grievous. But we maybe don't need to be afraid of loss. You know, in reality, although we don't put this in our advertising, everything we are doing here, everything we do on a cushion, everything we do on a walking path is actually learning how to die. Because it's about learning how to let go, about how to surrender that fear and anxiety that keeps us holding and the holding making us more and more tight and anxious. It's like we can ride and ride and stare out of the window thinking the bus will never stop. Or we can wake up and know that the bus will indeed stop and that there is something more important than fear. There is love, there is freedom, there is kindness. We can look at the person lying dead by the side of the road and knowing that could be you, it could be me, and then we know, we deeply know that kindness and connectedness is the only thing that makes sense anymore. The fear of public speaking. People sometimes feel bemused by this one. Uh, There was a whole research project done at Harvard University that actually really did put it as number one, that this was far more fearful to people than dying. Sometimes wonder why it's on this list. Well, I could invite you to come up here, take the microphone, and, you know, give the talk. Is that an entirely neutral experience for you? (laughs) Or what is it about this? Why is this on the list? Because isn't it about the fear of visibility and the vulnerability that is evoked by visibility, Isn't it often when we feel very visible, we feel the surge of me, the anxiety of me? You know, I'm going to make a fool of myself. What are people going to think about me? What kind of judgments are going to come? Of course, a lot of people retreat from this, but I have to say in my experience when I've offered this, I have had one or two people charge up, seize the microphone with gusto, and and refuse to relinquish it, you know. it's either. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that necessarily means they're less fearful, but it's a different kind of surge of selfing. Hmm? <laughs> How often we can find ourselves hiding in the shadows, afraid of what if might happen if we are visible? Now, I have to say that in some people's lives, in abusive situations, that has actually been a way of saving their lives. So I don't want to say that that's always, you know, something terrible. Sometimes it has been, for some people, many women, a survival mechanism. But how often, when it's not a survival mechanism, that it still feels like a survival mechanism? that we take on the cloak of invisibility out of fear, the fear of being judged, imagining the disapproval, the belittlement that could come our way if we simply step forward to express what we feel to be true. I would encourage you, I mean, I personally have been so inspired in my own life and my own practice by the people... I've so admired in the past and the present who've taken that step into visibility to actually speak what they feel to be true in situations that often have been deeply unsupportive. Whether it's Martin Luther King or Han Sang Suu people who are steadfast in what they know to be true. One of the people who has done this, in certainly in our lifetime, was a much-loved teacher, Gursananda, Cambodian elder who died not long ago. He was one of the few Cambodian monks to survive the Pol Pot regime in Cambodia. And he returned to Cambodia after all of that terrible genocide. And he opened a Buddhist temple in a barren refugee camp of the Khmer Rouge communists. There were 50,000 villagers who'd become communists at gunpoint and had now fled the devastation to camps on the Thai border. In this camp, the underground Khmer Rouge camp leaders threatened to kill anyone who would go to the temple. Yet on its opening day, more than 20,000 people crowded into the dusty square for the ceremony. There were sad remnants of families. An uncle with two nieces, a mother with only one of three children. The schools had been burned, the villages destroyed, and in nearly every family members had been killed or ripped away. I wondered what he could say to people who had suffered so greatly. Mahagosananda began the service with the traditional chants that had permeated village life for a thousand years though these words had been silenced for eight years of war and the temples destroyed. They remained in the hearts of the people who had known as much sorrow and injustice as any on earth. Then Mahagosananda began teaching one of the central verses of the Buddha, first in Pali and then in Cambodian, reciting the words over and over. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And as he chanted these verses over and over, thousands began to chant with him. They chanted and wept. It was an amazing moment, for it was clear that their hearts longed for this forgiveness, like a parched desert. And it was clear that the presence of this monk. And the truth he chanted was even greater than the sorrows they had had to bear. There is again, I think, something much more deeply important and valuable than the illusory protection and safer offered by invisibility because if you really think about it, when we seek invisibility and often the silence of invisibility, it's not as if our mind stops, does it? It's not as if we you know we may be protected from the judgments of others, but think about our own capacity to extend them to ourselves, our own judgments of belittlements and contempt and comparisons. looking at the sphere of visibility of visibility coming out coming into visibility is really about finding our voice finding a way of being in the world where everything that we do and say every choice we make articulates and embodies what we truly value what we feel to be true Of course there is fear uh, in being visible, yet there is kindness in knowing that, and yet not to consent to being governed by it. The third of the fears is the fear of the loss of reputation. Most of us do love to be praised far more than we love to be blamed. We want to be seen, we wish to be seen as someone who is worthy and lovable, kind, caring, compassionate. We want to be seen as a kind of person who can be loved and respected. And this, is the, this lies at this heart, at this fear, the fear of loss of reputation. Blame and rejection and judgment and dismissal powerfully evokes the anxiety of me. You know, you could imagine if you were sitting here and one of us suddenly shouted out, Sally, stop squirming. <laughs> you know, you could imagine that. I mean, what would that be? you know, think, oh, yeah, it's fine, it's cool. You know, this is, uh, somebody's just got their thoughts, you know. Or would you feel that powerful surge of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm wrong, I'm, I'm unacceptable, I'm, you know, unworthy, I'm, I'm unlovable probably would. (laughs) We so do not wish to be seen as the kind of person who is unlovable. We fear other people's judgments. They raise our own fears or beliefs in inadequacy. We feel deeply injured, actually, when our intentions are misinterpreted by others or when we're on the receiving end of harshness and criticism. It raises, in some ways, our deepest fears of being no one, of being erased and annihilated. And in reaction, we often strike back with equal harshness, or else we crumble inwardly in a storm of self-recrimination and doubt. That is the nature of the anxiety of me, to magnify a sense magnify a sense of self and simultaneously to magnify a sense of other. And that's the nature of estrangement. That's the nature of separation, the separation in which there, there thrives an ocean of of mistrust and suspicion. So what is a really good question here is what are we protecting or asserting? Who is the me or the I? Who do I believe myself to be, want to be, want to be seen as? Isn't it true that all the agitated behavior we exhibit in order to protect me doesn't actually calm? fear. It actually magnifies it. What is kindness in the face of hostility? I mean, we all find it really easy, don't we, to be kind to cute puppies and kittens and, you know, little children and babies, you know, or even someone who's really kind of helpless and and distressed. But what does kindness really mean in the face of harshness? In the face of hostility, in the face of judgment, that takes a lot of courage to be upright in. Shantideva again once wrote Unruly beings are like space, there is not enough time to overcome them. Overcoming our fearful thoughts is like defeating all our enemies. One thing we can be sure of, we actually cannot control what other people do with their minds. We see, goodness me, how hard it is to control what our own minds do. (laughs) Never mind what other people's minds do. But I think true kindness and fearlessness may begin by the very profound commitment not to participate in aversion and ill will. Not to participate. This is really a moment-to-moment practice, I have to say not to participate in aversion, the aversion we face in others, not to participate in our own aversion. It is a training in kindness and fearlessness, moment to moment. In the the Metta Sutta, the Loving Kindness Sutta, the Buddha encourages us to pervade the whole world with kindness unconditionally, free from hatred and ill will. In the Bodhisattva training, It says, whenever my eyes so much look at another, may my regard be honest and full of love. It's quite an invitation. The fear of insufficiency, deprivation, not having enough. The fear of discomfort, the fear of the intrusion of the innumerable, unpleasant sights, sounds, tastes, sense, events of the world invading my space. Invading my space. It's difficult, isn't it, even to be mindful of the unpleasant, never mind to accommodate it. And you think, how often we practice avoidance? How often we practice resistance? You know, in all those moments, we are, in truth, practicing fear. It can be, you know, we can be afraid of sitting across the table from people we don't know at lunchtime. So we choose, you know, there's a nice little isolated picnic table over there. Don't need to do that. Hmm? We can be afraid of what might happen if I sit just that extra two minutes. We might be afraid of what happens if... If someone extends love to you, there can be so many things we avoid, and not just the little things, also the big ones, but we can sense all the walls we are building, and what are we really trying to protect ourselves on? Something so human. We're trying to protect ourselves from injury. We're trying to protect ourselves from harm. So human, yet we also see with wisdom that there is not enough mechanisms or equipment in the world to armor us against loss and pain and sorrow. And in many ways, the practice of fear and avoidance is the polar opposite of the practice of compassion. It's hard to open to discomfort. It is hard to open to pain. But you know what? It's a lot harder not to. Because there is so much agitation, so much busyness, so much fear in avoidance and resistance. It is so hard on our hearts, so hard on our minds. And we are turning in turning away. We are undermining our capacity for tolerance and deepening our habit, habit of intolerance. We're undermining our capacity for trust and confidence, and deepening the habits of doubt and anxiety. We really ask to embrace kindness and fearlessness, really as a practice, a commitment undertaken in the fires of aversion, and resistance, and doubt. It's like Reb Anderson once said, you know, it's like, like the Buddhists don't sit in the suburbs of suffering; they sit downtown. The last of the fears in this list is the fear of unusual mind states and emotions. Well, you know, sitting here over these days, you might actually feel like a lot of your mind states are pretty unusual in the sense that they seem to come unbidden, don't they? I mean, you don't get up in the morning, think it's a great day to be aversive, you know? Great day to be judgmental, I mean, a great day to be intolerant. I mean you don't come into a city and think, Fantastic, I think I'll just sink in despair. You know, they just they seem to they just come unbidden, don't they? Some of the very difficult ones depression, rage, envy, anxiety, very rarely welcome, the more extreme emotions and mind states. It come to you know the fear of losing our mind. The fear of being insane. Having a mind that is completely beyond our control. I think given for most of us when we've seen just how chaotic and uncontrollable and disorderly our minds can be, this seems like a pretty rational fear. But fear too is a state of mind. Fear is also a state of mind. Fear is also an emotion. And in some ways, it's pretty much the primary default mechanism of the sense of self. When endeavoring to push away or to avoid difficult mind states with fear and dislike, it's very easy to forget that our mind and our heart is as deserving of kindness and compassion as anything else we could meet in this life. There is something so fearless in what you are doing here, in learning to open and to meet your own mind with kindness, with softness, with courage. The heart of this path is very much about knowing the mind with mindfulness, befriending the mind, and liberating the mind, the heart. Just as in the discourse, the meta discourse, the Buddha speaks about the kindness and the courage of a mother protecting her only child. We need to protect our own minds, our own hearts, not with defensiveness and with anxiety, but protecting our own minds and heart with that which truly protects our own minds and hearts, kindness compassion, fearlessness. Fear can wear many, many different faces, but when we distill them down, we see this very natural underlying fear of the fear of injury, the fear of hurt. And this is something that so needs to be embraced with kindness and compassion. Anxiety doesn't serve us well. Anxiety keeps us busy, and the anxiety that we try to use to protect ourselves is the same anxiety that makes us suffer. And what are we protecting? It's a very good question to take with us through the day. To find the willingness to be upright and compassionate in the face of fear we really do begin to see how this anxiety of me can begin to soften, can begin to fall away. In the uprightness of compassion, we see the walls begin to crumble. And we understand a much deeper, much more important place to value, to commit to, which is really the freedom of our own hearts. to end with the last verse from this poem. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. If we could just sit together just for a moment. It was a walking period, and then will come back for the last sitting of the day. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.